continue through our series, our walk through the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to chapter 4 of Philippians. We'll be in verses 2 through 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, take that Bible with you. The church is a gift to you for free. Let me pray for us. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, and then we'll get to work. God, I pray this morning as we open up your word together that the result of our time in the scriptures would be a growing and abiding in you, a growing intimate relationship with you, Jesus, a true connectedness to you, the vine, as your branches I pray that through that abiding, we would experience your peace, God, the peace that you supply to us that surpasses all understanding, and that through that abiding, that we would thrive in our relationships with one another as we seek oneness and peace uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that the spoils of all of that would be peace and joy on our end, and glory on your end that comes in our abiding in and trusting in you and showing the world what you're really like. Holy Spirit, would you do what I cannot do, which is to awaken our slumbering minds and hearts this morning in the moments to come. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we talked a little bit about this this word picture that Jesus paints for us in John 15, this word picture of the vine and the branches. And we'll actually talk about that in more detail a few weeks from now because that's one of Jesus' I am statements. I am the vine, you are the branches. So we'll get into that with respect to the I am series. Jesus says this in John 15, verses 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul, we talked about this last week, understands that the Christian life is is not that you receive Jesus and then move on to something else. There is nothing else. The Christian life is about seeing and savoring Jesus today. And then we wake up tomorrow and we see and savor him tomorrow and then we wake up Tuesday and we do the same thing and we just keep seeing and savoring Jesus until he returns or the day we die. That's the Christian life. Everything else is the outworking of this seeing and savoring Jesus. Or to use the word picture in John 15, anything fruitful that we bring to the table will be the direct result of our abiding in Jesus. The direct result of an intimate connection as his branches to the vine, Jesus Christ himself. It's first and foremost about fixing our eyes on Jesus and growing in relational intimacy with him. It's about a relationship, abiding, and as we do so, the fruit that we long to bear, we actually bear. Or another way we could say it is looking like Jesus comes as a result of looking at Jesus. Now, I think this word picture is very appropriate for this morning's passage the word picture that we find in John 15. And I want to bring it to the table to do something a little out of the ordinary. On the screen behind me is a, is a graphic. Um, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about three things in this morning's passage, all having to do with peace. He's going to talk in verses 2 and 3 about peacemaking with others in the church. 
in verses four through seven, he's gonna talk about the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And in verses eight and nine, he's gonna talk about the God of peace himself. Here's what we're gonna do this morning, a little abnormal. We're gonna, we're gonna work our way in reverse through this passage. And here's why. Because as you look at this graphic of a vine and its branches, it's our connectedness to the God of peace, verses eight and nine, that offers us any hope of experiencing the peace of God, verses four through seven, giving us any hope of making peace with others, verses two through three. So rather than start with the branch-to-branch relational implications of this morning's passage, we're gonna start with the vine and work our way out. Does that make sense? That's what we're after this morning, okay? So verse nine, Paul's gonna offer us one of the most glorious promises in all of the Bible, namely the nearness of God himself, the presence of God in our lives, intimacy with the vine. Verse nine, the God of peace, Paul says, will be with you. But here's the deal. It's a promise, verse nine, that's contingent upon responding appropriately to the commands preceding it. For those of you who who love practical application, who say, man, just give me a few things that I can grab hold of and implement in my life, this passage is your jam, okay? Gospel-centered churches get skittish about passages like this because we, we, we freak out, we think, oh no, people are going to take commands and they're going to try to leverage them to earn God's love, to earn his favor, as if we can impress God with our moralistic resume. But to be clear, the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin and the empty hands of faith. We believe that as a church. Yet God does teach us as his children to walk in his statutes to walk in his commands, that God has determined that there's a way to experience his nearness, his presence in our lives, and it comes by responding appropriately to everything laid out in verse eight in the beginning of verse nine. So for the next few minutes, hear me, your note-taking will be for the sake of relational intimacy with the God who made you and has redeemed you if you are one of his, okay? Big deal coming up for the next few minutes. Connectedness to the vine is what's at stake. Verse eight, Paul says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So first and foremost, you cannot experience relational intimacy with God without thinking. We say this all the time around here. Christianity is a thinking faith. Going back to last week, we're all theologians. The word theology in its bare essence, means a word about God. Everyone, including the atheist, has something to say about God, and thus we are all theologians. It's not that some of us are and some of us aren't. The question really is whether our theology is in line with reality or not. There's something about awakening our minds to the glory and wonder of God that causes us to experience his nearness, his presence in our lives, which presents us with a pretty provocative question, I think. This is a cultural question, and then I'll make it very personal in a second, okay? Culturally speaking, in the midst of the busy world in which you and I live, filled with more distractions than a dog in a forest full of squirrels, right? How many professing Christians truly know something of God's nearness in their lives? It's a big question. To use that word picture from John 15, how much abiding is actually happening in evangelical circles? Or let me make it personal. Would you describe your relationship with Jesus as intimate? Or is that a weird word when you think about Jesus, when you think about your relationship, intimacy with him, abiding, 
if you want that for your life, it really does in some sense come back to the simple question, what is it that practically awakens your mind to the things of God? What is it that awakens you to the beauty of the vine? That's what Paul was after in chapter 2. That's why he incorporated this picture of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, condescending, stooping down, clothing himself in flesh, living the life that we could never live, dying the death that we deserve to die, rising from the grave, slaying those darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, and ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul's trying to fuel the thinking of the Philippians church to to awaken their minds yet again to the beauty and wonder of Jesus, who he is and what he has accomplished. Pragmatically speaking, it's different for all of us as to how we experience this awakening of our minds. For some of us, it's our Bible and a good cup of coffee in that chair that we love. If you're like me, maybe that's, that's how it works for you. Maybe it's getting into an environment where things actually slow down for a bit. Everything's so fast-paced and instantaneous in our subculture. Maybe it's the arts or music or nature or good food. I don't know. There's uh, there's not this narrowing in Paul's mind. He's very general in, in his declaration, right? Whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, whatever it takes to awaken your mind to the beauty and wonder of who God is and what he's done for you. We're all wired differently. Whatever it takes, narcotics not included, do it. There's a lot at stake here. Whatever it takes to awaken your mind to the beauty of Jesus and his eternal kingdom, do that. Be intentional. God's presence in your life, God's nearness, his intimacy is on the line. Coming back to this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself, we talk about this all the time around here. There's always a lie to be believed at any given moment, something that's the exact opposite of that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. As we, as we think on, as we meditate on those things which are pure, pure and lovely and commendable and just and honorable and true, it has a way of drawing us into God's presence. But notice that it's not some ivory tower exercise that we're talking about. Look at verse 9. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Christianity is most certainly a thinking faith, but it's not just a thinking faith for the sake of thinking. It's a learning faith, Paul says. It's a receiving faith. It's a hearing and seeing faith that we put into practice. It's very possible to think without internalizing anything at all, right? Welcome to every exam I cram for in my undergrad program. It's scary. I've said this before. I have a bachelor's degree in public relations, and I'm not even sure what that is. That's terrifying. And that's a lot of of, uh, undergrad students when they come out of their programs. Thinking doesn't always mean learning. For Paul, the Christian life is not just about thinking, but rather thinking that becomes a part of us, becomes a part of who we are. It impacts those moments where, where sin and unbelief threaten to undo us. It's truth that we take with us into the trenches of war day after day in this fight to believe who God is and who he is for us in Christ. That Christianity is not a whiteboard worldview. It's not something that can remain in the confines of the classroom. It's a worldview that must be lived out in the midst of the everyday. Which is why Paul says, it's not just that I've taught you some things as, as a good professor would, but rather you've seen, you've heard. My life is an example of my teaching. When we lived in Orlando between 2010 and 2015, 
Um, God was kind in bringing a couple of families into uh, my family's life as I was walking through this church planting apprenticeship program. One family in particular, Brooks and I got to babysit their kids from time to time. And, and it was a great honor, a great privilege, a, a glorious opportunity for us to see what it's like to sit around the dinner table with little ones in a, in a Christ-honoring, Christ-centered way, trying to point them to Jesus. What it's like to uh, put them to bed in a way that points them to Jesus as the last thing that they're thinking about before their eyes close. There was something sweet. There was something beautiful about that season that has caused us to implement some things in the lives of our own children for the glory of God. Comes back to the beauty of the church, a life lived in community. I hope this church is one in which we have a culture in which it's okay to learn, to receive, to hear, to to see. A culture in which it's okay to ask questions of others. How, How do you deal with this particular issue in life? Has anyone ever experienced this struggle? What what am I supposed to make of this part of the Bible? I don't get it. Being able to ask those types of questions. We're talking about a culture uh, where where there's uh, open ears and, and open eyes, where we're perked to learn, so to speak. A culture in which we're we're open and excited about learning from one another as fellow image bearers and followers of Jesus. Just to be clear, I have a lot to learn from everyone in this church. I hope we can all declare that of one another. Ultimately, Paul says, as the internalizing is happening for you, put those things into practice. Step out of the classroom and see what God might do. You might fall on your face along the way. We talked about this the last couple weeks, a stumbling saint. There's grace for that. Better to have danced and stubbed your toe than to have sat in the bleachers and missed the dance altogether, right? That's my Garth Brooks reference for 2017. You're not going to get another one. Here's the, here's the most beautiful part of that illustration. According to verse 9, God's your partner on the dance floor. That's cool. He promises to be with you every step of the way. That's Christianity. It's not a religion. It's about a relationship with the God who made you and redeemed you. Before we go any further this morning, this is the most important question that I will ask during our time together. Do you really want an abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you really want to experience his nearness? If you're not a Christian, every other religion outside of Christianity says that you can claw your way into fusing yourself to the vine. It's about what you do and don't do. My question, I ask it over and over again around here, is how do you know when you've done enough? That's a terrifying way to live, in my opinion. I cannot sleep well at night if I have to embrace a works-based view of salvation. How, how do you know? I, I feel like I'm a fairly decent human being for the most part, but, but the thought of my good works and bad works hanging in the balance with eternity at stake, that's pretty scary. Right? The standard for most people who embrace a works-based view of salvation is, is subjective at best. It's, well, I'm a good person because I'm better than, and you fill in the blank. It, it becomes a comparison game. As long as I'm better than somebody else, I'm on my way to heaven. What a, what a terribly risky way of thinking and living. Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to wonder. You can know because Christianity is not about what you do and don't do. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done And Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place, on our behalf. He rose from the the grave. He really did slay those darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus declares that we've become intimately fused to him by grace alone through faith alone. 
that we come to him again with nothing more than our sin and the empty hands of faith, and he unites us to himself as branches connected to the true vine. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to turn to Jesus and to trust in him for salvation as Savior and King, to experience an intimate, abiding relationship with the true vine for the first time in your life. Now, for those of us who profess to know and love and follow Jesus, again, the question is, would you describe your relationship with Jesus as intimate? If not, in some sense, you can grab hold of that intimacy by putting verses 8 and 9 into practice. Again, whatever it takes to awaken your mind to the beauty of King Jesus and his eternal kingdom, go after that. Don't settle for anything less than fighting for that in your life. And don't let that turn you into the next theological bobblehead, the next ivory tower theologian. We have enough of those in the Bible Belt already. Let that truth become a part of you. Let that truth be rooted in and wrestled through in the context of community. Look for examples of that truth in the family of faith that God has graciously given you and practice that truth on the dance floor of life. You know what keeps you from becoming a theological bobblehead? Putting it into practice and stubbing your toe on the dance floor a few times. That'll humble you. As you do these things, verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. The presence of God in your life. An abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus. A true connectedness to the vine. Again, coming back to that graphic, that visual display of this morning's passage. Now as we work our way backwards through the passage... Paul's going to offer us another glorious promise, namely the peace of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. There are a lot of people in this world who want the peace of God without an abiding relationship with the God of peace. They want the benefits of the branch life, you could say, without a connectedness to the true vine. Which is why, I think, in some sense, verse 7 is plastered all over coffee mugs and bumper stickers galore. Meanwhile, verse 9 gets absolutely no press. You ever thought about that? People are desperately hungry for the peace of God. Far fewer are desperately hungry for the God of peace. But the reality is this. If you want the peace of God without the God of peace, you won't get either. They're connected to one another. The two go hand in hand. You cannot and will not experience the benefits of the branch life without abiding in the vine. Um, I've said this as it pertains to the challenges with experiencing true community and the challenges of living as a missionary in your own backyard in, in the suburban context in which we find ourselves, people pull into their driveways, they pull into their garages, they close the garage door behind them, they go into their home, and they live their lives of solitude with their family, in their silo, with, with the hope of not having a hostile relationship with their neighbors, right? That's not fun. Who wants that? You might have to live next to them for several decades. And so we park in the right places. We, we obey the rules of the HOA if you have one of those. We maintain our lawns appropriately so we, that we can have a peaceable relationship with our neighbors without ever having to truly know them. Now, here's the crazy thing. There are a lot of people in our context who, without saying it, want that to be what a relationship with God is. I want to be peaceable with him. I certainly don't want to have a hostile relationship with him. So so I'll park appropriately. I'll obey the rules of the HOA. I'll maintain my lawn, so to speak. I'll do all the things that I think will make God happy with me so that we can have a peaceable relationship. But if I'm honest, this intimacy thing, this abiding thing, no thank you. 
I would rather close my garage door, do my own thing in my own silo, live life the way I want to live life, build my own kingdom, and call it a day. Peaceable with him without ever knowing him. That's terrifying. That's what we're seeking to fight against this very morning. If you're hungry for an abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus, the rest of this passage is going to be glorious for you. If you're not, it's going to become an exercise in futility for you. It's in light of an abiding relationship with Jesus, a connectedness to the vine, that Paul presents us with a second promise found in this morning's passage. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My, My guess is that most of us brought some anxiety into this room this morning with respect to something. I don't know what it is for you, what makes you anxious, what... What causes you to become unsettled in in those moments where everything comes unraveled? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your career path. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's kids. I don't know. We know that the church in Philippi was experiencing some things that caused some anxiety. Paul's imprisonment being one. Persecution from outsiders. uh, Divisiveness among church members. We'll get there in just a second. My guess is that Many of us in this room have gone to Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 in those moments of unsettledness, and rightly so. It's an amazing promise of God, the peace of God which surpasses understanding. Who wouldn't want that? But again, it's a promise, verse 7, that's contingent upon responding appropriately to the commands found in verses 4 through 6. Look at these commands. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I will say rejoice. That According to Paul, one of the things that causes us to experience the peace of God in our lives is our rejoicing in the Lord. Now, now that may sound like a no-brainer because Paul's been talking about joy now for, for three, now going on four chapters throughout the course of this entire letter. But Paul finds it necessary to hammer it home one more time, and if it's good for Paul, it's good for me. Part of rejoicing uh, or part of experiencing true peace comes as we fight to be happy in God. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And understand that, that Paul's not talking about some manufacturing of feelings. Paul understands that sorrow is real. He understands that hurt is real. He understands that brokenness is real. But in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the brokenness, God calls us to fight by the power of the Spirit to be happy in Him. You could say it this way, though the Christian's joy may be tested, it can never be fully extinguished by sorrow or circumstance. I've shared this quote before with, with you guys. Charles Spurgeon says this, Our joy no man takes from us. We are singing pilgrims, though the way be rough. Amid the ashes of our pains live the sparks of our joys, ready to flame up when the breath of the Spirit sweetly blows. Our latent happiness is a choicer heritage than the sinner's riotous glee. Well, let's not forget who's making this statement. Rejoice in the Lord always, says a man imprisoned in Rome. It's not as though he's living a life of great prosperity and is calling us to put on the pasted smile. He knows something of the peace of God that makes no sense in light of present circumstance. And part of his knowing that peace has to do with the fact that he really does believe that Jesus is the greatest treasure in all of the universe. We've been talking about that through the entire course of this series. He really does believe that though everything may be stripped away, no one can strip Jesus away from him. And if you add up all the losses and replace them with Jesus, you win in the end. That's good gospel math. Now think about the kind of impact that 
that actually believing that can have on a person's anxiety. Game changer, right? All those things that we fret about are not more valuable than Jesus in the end. And he is ours forever. There's something about finding our joy in Christ, our treasure, going back to the abiding peace. You can't divorce the two that shapes the way we handle the anxiety-inducing things in life. He goes on to give us a second way to experience God's peace. He says in verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That, that one way to, to fight for the peace of God in your life is to seek to be happy in God no matter what. To, to seek to believe in those moments where it's most difficult to believe that he really is the most valuable thing in all the universe. Another thing According to verse 5, it's how we respond to other people. Now we start to get into the the branch-to-branch relationships in this word picture. That word reasonableness in verse 5 can also be translated gentleness. It's the idea of being measured in our responses to others, not being contentious, not not lashing out at others, particularly uh, with respect to others who help to create that anxiety in our lives. Almost sounds like a fortune cookie statement, doesn't it? Be peaceable with others and you will experience God's peace. But, but it's true. Treating others harshly in the midst of our anxiety-ridden moments does nothing to eliminate the anxiety, does it? I mean, I can just put myself and my marriage as an illustration on the table and tell you that when I'm experiencing great anxiety and worry, I can be very short with my spouse and I can tell you there's never been a time where my shortness with my wife has ever eliminated the anxiety. It's only carried it for hours longer than it should have been carried on. There's something peace invoking about fighting to be happy in God, and there's something peace invoking about treating others peaceably, particularly in those moments of anxiety. And lastly, Paul says in verse 6, he says, If you want to experience God's peace, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So so Paul lays out a don't do this and a do this part of of, of this third command that drives us towards experiencing God's peace. The don't do this part is do not be anxious about anything. Don't let anxiety consume you. That's the rocket science for the morning, right? If you want the peace of God, don't be anxious. Thanks, Paul. It's not novel information. Here's what it is. It's a reminder because our hearts stink at embracing that. The default of the human heart is to go into worry mode, to go into panic mode. Worry is one of those things that that we do in order to feel like we have some sort of control of a situation that's out of our control. In some sense, you could say this. You could say every worrisome thought, every anxious thought functions like a false prophet telling you that God's not good, sovereign, or wise. That if you just think about that situation a little bit more, if you just breathe the air of anxiety a little bit more, maybe you can manipulate that situation in a way that changes the outcome. It's like, uh, I'm not a golfer, so I can only speak as one who watches people golf, but, it, but it's, like, it's like watching a golfer swing and, and hit the ball, and all of a sudden the ball's going right, and, and you see that golfer kind of lean you know, to the left and, and start talking to the golf ball as if that's going to change the direction that the ball's going. Paul says, don't do that. That's dumb. It doesn't give any more control of the situation to you than you had before you you did that in the first place, before you tried to manipulate the circumstance through worry, through anxiety. 
Paul says, instead of worrying about the things you can't control, how about talking to the one who is in control? The positive command in verse 6 is really simple. The antidote to anxiety, prayer. Every time you're tempted to try to manipulate your circumstances by dwelling on them just a little more, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Every time you're tempted to try to manipulate your circumstances by dwelling on them just a little bit more, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The question is, do we believe he really does know what's best? Do we believe that he really is seated on his throne? Do we believe that he really does love us and will do whatever it takes to draw us to himself in deeper dependence and intimacy, going back to that abiding in the vine word picture? That song that some of you have sung along the way, what a friend we have in Jesus, says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Paul says, fight to be happy in God, to see him as supremely valuable. Fight to be peaceable with others in your moments of greatest worry. Fight to spend your time praying rather than being anxious. Commit yourself to these things, verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That, that as, we, as we embrace these commands, as we fight to see Christ as supremely valuable, as we temper our responses to others in the midst of difficulty, as we cast our anxieties on the Lord in prayer, Listen to what God promises on his end. It's incredible. The word guard in verse 7, it's a military word, like the guarding of a fortress against enemy attack. God promises to protect you like a warrior from the anxiety that would consume you otherwise. It's amazing. And notice that his language here assumes that every prayer is not going to be answered the way we want it to be answered. You don't need your heart and mind guarded if all of your prayers are being answered the way you think they should, do you? That doesn't require a peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that surpasses all understanding is one that carries you in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances. Some of you have been there. Some of you know what it's like to say, man, I shouldn't have been steady in the midst of that. That was God guarding my heart and mind like a soldier guards a castle in the midst of an all-out war. Prime example the steadiness of the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison. Verse 7, it's the only way that makes sense. That as you fight to see Christ as supremely valuable, as you temper the way you respond to others in the midst of difficulty, as you cast your anxieties on the Lord, God says, and listen to this, he says, I'll go to war for you. He says, I'll bludgeon the enemy of anxiety for you. I'll crucify the enemy of worry for you. Anybody want that enemy bludgeoned this morning? What an incredible promise. Paul says it's a promise that's ours in Christ Jesus. It's a promise for the children of God, for those who are connected to the vine as his branches, for those whom Jesus has taken his rightful throne. But if you're, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, you get to cast your anxieties, your cares on another. You don't have to carry them. You get to turn them over to one who's far more qualified to handle your cares than you are. One who loves you so much that he was willing to spill his blood for you. That's good news. You're, you're loved, Christian. Hear that this morning. No matter what you're going through, you're loved with a love that outshines all other loves. Cast your cares on a good, sovereign, wise God who loves you deeply. 
Coming back to that graphic yet again, you, you begin to see how, how this flows forth from, from the source of the vine to the branches. You begin to see how pursuit of peace only makes sense in the context of an intimate relationship with Jesus. How can you, how can you treasure as supremely valuable a Jesus you don't intimately know and love? How can you go to God in prayer and it be more than an effort to manipulate him apart from an intimate relationship with him? As we abide in Christ, intimately connected to the vine, he supplies us his branches with a peace that surpasses all understanding. And now, as we work our way to the last part of this passage, we get to see the branch-to-branch relational implications of this abiding relationship with Jesus and the peace that he supplies. He says this weird passage, weird couple of verses. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is one of those few times in scripture where we actually get a case study of people mentioned by name who love Jesus, are a part of the same church, and are citing irreconcilable differences with one another. Can you, can you imagine if I stood up here right now and did what Jason did like three or four weeks ago, where, where he pointed out all the Timothys and Epaphroditus's in the church, and we just went after this one in that way, right? Paul's a bold brother, is he not? But that's how much he really does believe the gospel's at stake. If Jesus really has made peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20, then to remain unwilling to pursue peace, reconciliation, oneness with others in the church is oppositional to our very own message. Right? The very purity and essence of the gospel message itself is at stake here in our response to others in the church. The, the, you could say it this way. The degree to which we pursue unity, peace, and reconciliation with others in the church is the degree to which people will view God's pursuit of unity, peace, and reconciliation with us. It, it's like, we, we've talked about it before, marriage being a shadow of the greater reality of, of how Jesus feels about his church, the covenant between Christ and his bride. The same is true here with respect to the way we pursue peace and reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a shadow. It points people to the reality of how God feels about us and pursues us. The very purity and essence of the gospel message itself is at stake in our approach to peacemaking and reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love what Paul does here. He's better than I am in this regard by far, even in the midst of what is most certainly a rebuke. He points out some really encouraging things in these women, some things that are going really well. He declares their names to be written in the book of life. In other words, he's not bringing the authenticity of their relationship with Jesus into question. He acknowledges that they're Christians. He also acknowledges that these women have labored in the gospel with him along the way. They're partners in the gospel, fellow partakers of God's grace, going back to chapter one of this book of the Bible. They played a significant role in the advancement of the gospel in the city of Philippi. God has used them in mighty ways to draw people to himself and to build his church. But now there's a relational rift. We don't know if it's a philosophy of ministry issue, personal preference issue, an issue having to do with envy and rivalry going back to chapter 2 verse 3. What we do know is that whatever it is threatens to muddy the waters of the very gospel message that these women have championed all along. 
namely the good news of a peacemaking, reconciling God who sent his son to reconcile us to himself. And so he urges these women to agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind. That phrase, again, in the Lord, big deal, huge deal. Paul uses phrases like that all throughout the New Testament, in Christ, in him, in the Lord. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of of union with Christ, being intimately, relationally connected to Jesus. Again, it comes back to that imagery from John 15, the vine and the branches. We're all branches intimately connected to the same vine, Jesus Christ himself. We're not in Christ independent of one another. That's just a misunderstanding of what Jesus was talking about in John 15 altogether, if you think that's Christianity. We're in Christ together. The more we abide in Christ the vine, listen to me, the more we abide in Christ the vine, the more absurd it becomes for us to refuse to pursue oneness with the other branches connected to the vine. The Christian life is a life devoted not only to fighting for intimacy with the vine himself, but also a life devoted to fighting for oneness with the branches. The two go hand in hand. And and here, this is the most mind-blowing thing of all with respect to verses two and three. Did you know that Jesus actually prayed for that for you? Personally. Jesus had a quiet time in John 17, and he prayed this for you personally. Listen to these words. John 17, 21. Jesus prays for believers that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus himself prayed that our unity would be like the perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son. That's crazy. And that in our unity, the world would believe that the Father actually sent the Son on a peacemaking mission. Again, our unity, our peacemaking with one another, our pursuit of oneness with one another puts the very gospel on display for a watching world. Satan loves, he loves when brothers and sisters in Christ experience relational rifts, especially those who are viewed as hard laborers in the gospel. It allows him to muddy the waters. The the reality is the pursuit of unity, the pursuit of reconciliation, the pursuit of oneness with brothers and sisters in Christ, it really is a gut punch to the devil of hell. And so let me ask one more hard question this morning. Is there anyone within this church family or in evangelical circles at large with whom you need to make peace? And let's start small. Let's start within our church family, maybe even get smaller in your community group. I don't know. And kind of work your way out from there and wrestle with that question, knowing that the purity of the gospel message is at stake. Knowing that the the compelling nature of that vine branch word picture is at stake. Because the reality is this. Our unwillingness to pursue peace, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue oneness, tells the world that that's what God's like. And our willingness to pursue peace and reconciliation and oneness tells the world that that's what God's like. Either way, we're telling the world something about God. And listen, I'm not saying that peacemaking is an easy endeavor. It costs Jesus his life. It costs Jesus bloodshed. It'll require at a minimum that we go back to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 and put on the mind of Christ that we see in those verses. I mean, Paul even goes so far to say in this morning's passage that you might have to get a third-party mediator. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, 
help these women. True companion gets to remain anonymous in this. You don't know who that guy is or that gal, but, but we do know that there's some example of third-party mediation in the Bible for the sake of the gospel. Right? There's, a, there's a reason that it makes sense sometimes that if you're married, you can go sit with your spouse and, and have someone as a mediator in those moments where you're struggling to experience oneness with one another, and that person draw things out of you that you just can't seem to get to in a conversation with your spouse. There's a reason that counseling works. There, there, there is something about the fact that, uh, again, using that, that marital picture, that your spouse can say something to you, and it goes in one ear and out the other, and someone outside of that relationship can say the same thing, and you go, yeah. Like, there's something about third-party intervention at times that is good and right and healthy. And what Paul's saying is some of us need to grab a third-party mediator for the sake of the gospel, maybe. And on the flip side, some of us need to be mediators. We need to, uh, to, to grab hold of a little more boldness and, and to step in. Uh, Francis Chan, rarely do I hear him say things that don't sound fun and delightful and lovely. Like he's, he's very compelling as a visionary. When he unpacks the scriptures, um, he has a way of, of rebuking in, in a way that doesn't hurt quite so much. But listen to what he says about this particular part of this passage. He says, don't let your fear of meddling keep you from seeking to reconcile people. There's a difference between meddling and seeking to do gospel-centered reconciliation. So some of us, when we see that, those rifts, we need to step in a little bit more readily for the sake of the gospel. He goes on to say, even more boldly, further, if you as a believer are acting wrongfully toward your brother or sister, you shouldn't think it's none of anyone's business. It is the church's business because you're a part of the body and your sin affects the whole body. Again, the purity of the gospel message is at stake. The clarity and compelling nature of the vine branch word picture is at stake. Again, our unwillingness or willingness to pursue peace with others, oneness with others in the church, will tell people something of what God is like. And so we have a real opportunity to deliver a gut punch to the devil of hell this morning. We have an opportunity to embrace Jesus' prayer for oneness, the prayer that he prayed over every single one of us by pursuing that oneness with others in this church family who we may be currently experiencing a rift of sorts. I hope, I hope that verses two and three sober all of us. I hope it causes every one of us to say, I could very easily be the next threat to the unity of the church. These were strong women of the Lord. It's most of our defaults to think that the problem is out there. So let's soberly acknowledge that this could be any one of us Let's humbly pursue oneness for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the church. And, and, and let's acknowledge that, again, coming back to that picture of the vine and the branches, it all begins with abiding, a growing intimate relationship with Jesus, a true connectedness to the vine. And it's through that abiding that we experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding as his branches. And it's through that abiding that we can actually thrive in those branch-to-branch relationships, knowing that the spoils for, our, for us on our end are, are joy and peace and, and that God will get the glory on his end as we abide in him and trust in him and depend on him and show the world what he's really like. In just a moment, we're gonna receive uh, communion. We'll move into a time of reflection before we do so. Um, I would just invite you, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian over the course of the next few moments, 
Uh, don't jump to the branch stuff without assessing the vine stuff first. I think, I think we could all stand to, to have a moment of introspection, a, a moment of self-reflection, and to ask the question, does that word intimate describe my relationship with Jesus? Does that word abiding make any sense as it pertains to my view of, of Christianity, this, this being connected to Jesus, the vine, in an intimate relationship with him? Don't move too quickly past that one. Um, maybe it's that, that you've adopted this suburban garage life view of God. If I can just be peaceable with him um, without actually inviting him into my home, I'm good with that. Or, or, or maybe it's just soberly acknowledging that at any moment we can experience gospel drift and, and, and that our abiding could, could move into complacency or the absence of abiding in intimacy. And, and so yet again, we fix our eyes on Jesus and then out of that, let those questions of self-reflection come as to what, what, what can it look like for me to embrace the peace of God in my life by setting aside anxiety and casting my cares on the Lord more rhythmically in my life? And what might it look like to pursue peacemaking with others, those branch-to-branch implications of this morning's passage? We'll have an opportunity to sit with those questions for just a few moments, and then uh, we'll receive of the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dipping it in the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. You're invited to, to come, to remember who Jesus is, what he's done for you, to rejoice in that, to know that uh, the receiving of the elements is a means of God's grace where we experience the presence of Christ by his spirit. There's something about the abiding thing that actually happens as we receive communion. And we forget that very very easily at times, especially as a church who receives communion week in and week out. And as, as we, the church, come to receive communion, if you're not a Christian, I just invite you during that time to, to sit with the question of, of, you know, where is my worldview rooted? What do I think of God? Um, and, and what do I do with, with this weighing in the balance of the scales of, of my good, good and bad works? And, and how do I sift through all of that? And my hope is that you would you would bend your knee to Jesus and bring your sin in the empty hands of faith and just stop, stop running, stop running in that direction and turn to him and to trust in him for salvation.